Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. The second thing would would be to make sure, if you can, if you're able to, stockpile a little bit of an extra stash, an extra couple hundred or a couple of thousand calories to be able to utilize if you have to go through something that will be uh, a little more strenuous or where you might have to be awake for a lot longer than, you know, normal 16 or 18 hour day. That will help and it gives you just a little bit of extra security blanket to to be able to sort of make it through uh, a bit of a struggle. And then the last thing and probably the most important uh which is just a reflection on my biggest sort of screw up. I mean, it's almost so monumentally dumb what I did in the end uh, that, it, you know, it's it's stuff you see in a movie and while you're watching it, you're like, don't do that. What are you doing? Don't do that. And and lo and behold, I did it. But no matter how sure you are that you are going to get out and reach the end of your rationing period, uh, whether it be a resupply or a landfall or anything. I mean, this equates to being in the woods, camping, anything. Never, ever assume that you are out of the woods, so to speak, no pun intended, uh, or you've you've definitely got the port in sight and just start devouring food like it's nobody's business. Because you know what? If I wasn't the luckiest guy on earth, then I would have been blown away from my salvation by a big storm, uh, unable to reach back to land, and then I would have been really out of luck. So don't ever count your chickens before they hatch. Make sure you stick to your rationing schedule as best as you can, and um, don't ever assume that you're out of it before you're actually 100% out of it and you've got new supplies. So... That's pretty much it. Um, If you want to support the show, as I always say, just uh, follow the link in the description over to Patreon. Become one of our faithful crew members. There's 24 of us now, and it's fantastic. uh, It's about the end of the month, which is essentially the time that uh, I get my payday from everybody, and your support is hugely, hugely helpful in uh, all future endeavors as far as sailing and also with the podcast. So thank you all so much. Uh, If you want to contact the show, just head over to sailingintooblivion.com and follow the podcast link over to uh, a little email. Contact the show. You can reach right out. Questions, comments, whatever you want. I always read them. Um, Other than that, I've kind of have to tone down the amount of podcasts that I am doing at this point. Uh, To say the least, I am a little overwhelmed between work and working on the boat and the podcast and all the YouTube stuff. I'm, uh, I'm drowning a little bit up here and I'm feeling it. I came into this weekend with the best of intentions and, uh, was just exhausted and it's not a great place to be and I do have to make sure that I'm saving some time to be able to hang out with friends and uh, enjoy the main experience uh, as well as get all these things done that I want to do. I mean, I I wish I never had to sleep, but I definitely have to and uh, I'm an old man now. I'm not uh, some sprightly 20-year-old. I'm not even a 30-year-old. I'm a 40-year-old. So, It's, uh, yeah, it's one of those things. So I'm going to try to stick to a schedule of two, minimum two, maximum three podcasts per week. And uh, I'm going to try and stick to that as best as possible. But if we get back down to one show a week, uh, it'll only be temporary, but uh, it may have to happen a little bit as the workload for Sparrow uh, becomes a little more important than anything else only because I have to set sail in just over a month from now. And I want to make sure that we're safe, we're ready, and that's going to take quite a bit of work to get there. 
and uh, just a dash of luck as well. But other than that, hopefully you enjoy this podcast about rationing food and what it was like to do so for months and months at, at a time while you are in the Southern Ocean and sort of dealing with Mother Nature at her worst. But uh, yeah, here we go. Without further ado, rationing. Thanks for listening. I still remember vaguely the first inklings that I had that I was slowly devouring my food supply. Now, the whole rationing idea, as far as the food came out, was sort of a discovery. And it was something that I had already become sort of used to, having dealt with the lack of water that had been sort of forced upon me by the breaking of the the desalinator pump right around the middle of the Indian Ocean. And so I was already in sort of a mode of not consuming everything I wanted. And I suppose on a sailboat, on a long journey, you're always in that sort of mode. But you've hopefully brought with you all the supplies you'll need to be able to stay fed and stay hydrated without uh, too much worry and and without too much sitting and thinking and wishing you could eat more. And when that situation flips into a time where you drastically have to limit what you can eat, it's psychologically and physically uh, a big change. And that's sort of what had happened uh, and was one of the large focal points of my trip around the world. And it was, it was, I had set off in October, so October, November, December, January, by the end of January, beginning of February, so my fifth month out at sea, I still vaguely remember, uh, I believe it was running out of something, either it was some sort of almonds or something, there was a staple, a snack that I had actually eaten the last bag of, I couldn't, I reached for more and I couldn't find any more, and I thought to myself, huh, wow, okay, so... I had already run out of all the fresh food, the produce, the potatoes, the onions, the oranges, things like that, months prior. And that was something I expected. I knew it was going to happen. I had hoped to get two months out of the fresh food and the meats and the eggs and all that. And so that was sort of, it came, it went, it was no big deal. The party was over, so to speak. And then I was on to all the canned, all the dehydrated, all that. And so months went by, and it was. As I was approaching Australia or underneath Australia, when I ran out of something, and I can't put my finger on exactly what it was, but it sent sort of a, I don't know, I don't want to say a fear, but all of a sudden I knew that I was going to have to sort of scramble for a second and search around and maybe do an inventory. And that's exactly what I did. And out came all of the the bins that I hadn't touched yet, all of the mountain house packages of of dehydrated meals, spaghettis, things like that, all the big tins of bulk items and all the MREs and the bars and everything, every every last little bit that I could find came out of the woodwork. And I just started counting, and I started making list after list after list. And again, I was still in that mode, which was the big mistake that I had made in the beginning, of counting servings as meals. And I can remember seeing, I want to say, yeah, the number was probably in the 300s, uh, possibly a bit more. And again, this is entering the fifth month, so halfway through this voyage. And at that point, I had sort of assumed that I was going to be able to get around, 
Cape Horn and into the Atlantic and make my way north rather quickly, much, much faster than I actually was going to. And I just sort of chalked it up to, okay, well, <clears throat> I better get this show on the road. I better, better get moving. Uh, but more importantly, I started to think to myself, okay, well, that means that even when I'm hungry, that it's not exactly the signal to just sit down and eat something. It's it's a more of a regimented uh, idea of of eating and sort of a a battle, if you will, because you're always, like I said, you're always regimented. You know, you can't just sit there and eat every you know bag of cookies because you're going to run out of them and then you'll never have any more. And with another possibly four months left, only an idiot would do that. And uh, I am that idiot. I, I definitely had done stupid things like that. But in the end, you're essentially, uh, it's it's a mental battle, 100%, because you're hungry and you've just eaten and you're still hungry and you're sitting on a boat and the world outside hasn't changed and you're sailing and maybe it's a little bit cold which it definitely was uh, so you're burning up energy there and i remember just thinking to myself okay boy when do i get to eat again how much can i eat and that became sort of a daily issue or battle in my head of all right what am i going to get today and when you're out at sea and the clock or the normal wake up at 7 or 8 and go to bed at 9 or 10 is is not really a thing. And so many times you may be sort of battling your way through the day. <clears throat> you have your breakfast, you have your little lunch, you have your dinner. And then the winds change and the squalls roll in. And now you find yourself awake for an extra five, six, seven hours and you're hungry, and to sort of forego any eating at three in the morning, knowing that you're still going to be awake for for much longer, is is very very difficult. And that's those were the times where you would either buckle and say, "Okay, well I'll make a, a little thing of oatmeal just to warm me up and uh, fill the belly." And I soon found that you know when you do that, essentially you're you're just repeating the cycle of hunger pains and cravings over and over again. You know, if you if you have a little bit, you might be satisfied for those those few seconds that you're eating. But then instantly it returns to a grumbling stomach and hunger again and now you just want more. I mean, it was almost a, a vicious cycle, almost an avalanche going on and if you could abstain from it, <clears throat> then those typically eased off to a point where you didn't worry too much about them. But again, you're, you're sitting on a boat and you're staring off either into the ocean or you're down below and staring at the wall and you're thinking about all the things that you would like to eat and you're trying to distract yourself. You're, you're diving into books, you're doing anything and everything to sort of abstain from just the thought of food and of eating and the hunger that you're feeling and i don't know it was it was quite an experience uh, and and not a bad experience i don't i don't think um and especially in the beginning the beginning of the whole rationing thing was uh i want to say almost I don't want to say a welcome challenge because it definitely wasn't, but it was new to me. So it was interesting and it was exciting in a way because it was something I had heard about in other voyages and adventures. Obviously, we hear about people running out of food and, and this uh, subject matter. And suddenly I'm thrown into this new sort of adventure on top of the adventure I'm already in, which somehow in my brain equates to a little bit of a haha here we go yes we're really in it now don't ask me how don't ask me why it's not nothing i i 
summon up from my subconscious in any way, shape, or form. I don't control it, uh, but I know that I'm lucky to have that because as long as I can remember, I've always had that that mentality of when things get really, really tough, really demanding, really scary. That's sort of a time where something in my brain says, Yes, this is what you wanted, and you're in it, and enjoy it. Enjoy this feeling. And maybe it's just that old thing of of you're really living when you're sort of on the edge. I don't really know, but all, all I know is that's how I started to feel in the beginning. But now days turn into weeks, and weeks can turn into months, and you're in that same situation. And no matter how excited you are in the beginning, it's going to dull down and become this very uh, marathon-esque, uh, very, what's the best way to describe this? Just this drudgery that you go through and you wake up and you wake up hungry and you know that it's going to be another day of sort of that same feeling and that same want and you also have to remember at this point, I was down to, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 different items that I could really eat. There weren't a whole lot. There was a, a, a small selection of MREs from, you know, chicken fajita mix to uh, those rib-shaped pork patties, uh, a couple of spaghettis, things like that. And then there were only really, with the Mountain House, I think it was mostly just just chicken and rice. Um, maybe, what was the other one? It was some sort of egg and chicken sort of thing. Tasted like it was trying to be some sort of Thai food or something like that. Um, then I had oatmeal and then I had rice and a few cans of things, but not, not a whole lot else. There were just, just those sort of staples and lentils. I remember having a lot of lentils. And it, you just knew, you know, you, you knew what you had. You knew there weren't any more cookies. There weren't any more of the treats. The bacon, egg, and cheese sandwiches were long gone, and you could only dream about those. I mean... Just a thought of that would would send my mouth salivating for a long time. So I, I pretty much canceled those thoughts out of my brain. But essentially, you get underneath Australia, you get into the Pacific, and the only thing that was really distracting me was was keeping Sparrow in some semblance of good shape and dealing with the different weather and all the systems on the boat. But again, you know, you can work on a project for a couple of hours, but then eventually you're going to find your way back to that cockpit, back to the nav station and back to sort of staring off into the distance and thinking about how hungry you are and what you would really like to be able to do is eat, eat as much as you can. And I, it's, it's, it's a miserable existence for sure, uh, but it's a learning existence. At least it was for me because this this definitely was the first time in my life, thankfully, that I had ever had to experience something like this on, on such a prolonged scale. There had obviously been plenty of times where in the early days of my two-week camping trips with my friends, I had run out of food and rationing for a day or so is not typically that hard. But this was a whole different story. And and the fact that in the Pacific, I think, when it really hit home, I think part of that was the isolation that, that I knew I was in, where even if I headed for the nearest point of land, we're talking two weeks minimum to get there. You know, as you get closer and closer to Point Nemo, believe it's 1,600 miles to the nearest point of land, and that's probably Easter Island. And even then, the options that you have there aren't all that great because it's a, a pretty well-known spot for not being able to anchor. 
Um, if the weather isn't right, you, you might not be able to make landfall at all. They don't really have a protected harbor uh, that that protects against everything and so I don't know it's it's these these things these issues sort of compiled one on top of the other on top of the other so you had at its at its most basic you just have you and the sailboat trying to weather the southern ocean and then put on top of that you are rationing how much water you have and having to take advantage of every last drop that comes out of the sky that you can actually consume. And sometimes if it had that a little bit of salt in it, then that, that's what I would use for boiling water for rice or for uh, adding to the, the dehydrated meals and things. Um, and And so you've got those. And then to add on... The fact that you're rationing this food and you're you're rationing it at a level because it really was the Pacific when things became much more drastic uh, as far as trying to hold on to as much as I can. Because at this point still, I had it in my head that I was going to make it all the way back home without without having to get any sort of resupply. And so I was rationing down pretty hard. And there were... There were definitely days where if the weather was good and I didn't have to be out in the cockpit much and there weren't many sail changes or anything like that going on, then I really tried to conserve tactically my calorie consumption with my calorie uh, usage. And, and I found that to be pretty useful as far as physically. Mentally, it was it was pretty awful because even though you might not be burning a ton of calories, that doesn't tell your stomach or your tongue or your brain like, hey, you don't need it, so you don't need to be hungry. No, no, no. It doesn't work like that. You're still you're still hungry. And if anything, because you're not active and you're not distracted, you're you're dwelling on the fact that you're hungry even more so. And it becomes becomes sort of this battle and I, I can remember some of the the only oddball flavors that I was able to enjoy there were really two things I had two large jars of tums antacids or whatever whatever they are and then the other thing was uh, some of this oh shoot it's it's that that microbiome oh. I can't even remember what they call them, but it's essentially these little powder things where you you would you would take the teeniest little little tiny tiny spoonful and put it in some water and it will uh, you you get a little bit of a flavor out of it. I think this was some sort of melon flavor um, thing, but it was it was for your your gut biome and. So it's not something you would consume in bulk by any means, uh, but it was a flavor because at this point, the, you know, the coffee was gone and the tea was gone and all the drink mixes or anything like that were gone. I do remember at one point trying and thinking it might taste pretty good, like a broth or something to add garlic into some hot water. And uh, that was definitely a mistake. That tasted terrible. The garlic was just like garlic uh, chunks or something, a garlic powder, something you would find in your spice rack. Yeah. But you really do. You you start to, you know, you're sitting in this boat, you're all alone. There's nothing really to do. And you're just searching around for anything and everything. And I, I do remember <laughs> with the peaches, the peaches were were an absolute godsend uh, because they they gave me hours. One can of peaches could give me hours of of enjoyment, as they should, you know, rightfully in this world. Though it doesn't, because the the amount of it that's available is is insane. Uh, and but at that point, you know, having being down to the last just few, I can remember I would. I would crack the can open and I would take some of the peach juice and add it to hot water and sort of just slowly sip that. And that was wonderful. And then essentially add more water to it and, and chop the 
peaches up in the can with a fork just to release more of the juices and have more of this sort of peach tea, so to speak, and then slowly eat each little each little piece of a peach and oh man, it was it was absolutely amazing to to be in that moment where you're actually being able to eat this and and savor every last little tiny mouthful or tiny morsel that you're putting in. I mean, that's essentially if if life could be like that, it wouldn't take much to uh, excite and uh, and keep people very happy because it felt so good after not having it for so long. And I know I've talked about that plenty of times on the podcast, um, but there is something so fascinating about abstaining from all of these things that that are readily available because uh, when you do after a long time all of a sudden that thing that you really loved that you thought was amazing becomes absolutely astronomically good when you finally dive into it after not having it for so long but as the Pacific started to come to a close. I, I again was sort of trying to use tactic as best as possible, and things were getting a little more dire as far as the amount of food that was running out. And I, I soon sort of realized that, you know, unless unless I was catching tons of fish the minute I got to the Atlantic, and even then, I mean, the reality of that is 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 pretty. Pretty ridiculous to think that you'd be able to catch a fish almost every single day and be able to survive um, just on fish alone. Uh, and this this being well before I had realized how much weight I had lost. This was something that was completely uh, kept from me because I never, never pulled off all the layers of thermals that I had. Um, any time on the entire Pacific. So I took a bath just south of New Zealand, and the next time I would peel every layer off wasn't until uh, after I was north of the Falklands. So two and a half months. It's a, it's a long time. So for in my head, I didn't really think like, wow, I, I must be getting pretty skinny here. I just sort of thought, yep, everything's pretty much normal with my body. It's just my mind dealing with this this constant hunger. And so start to make my my dip south towards Cape Horn. And essentially what what happens is uh I I planned to take all of some of the the heavier uh, easier to eat, like the last of the MREs and the last of the cans of food. Uh, those were sort of stashed away with the idea that if we got into some pretty bad weather down south, uh, rounding the horn, I'd at least be able to get an energy boost and a morale boost probably more than anything from, from a nice, hot, delicious meal. And for the two weeks or so leading up to that, was really just going to finish off the last of the oatmeal, you know, in these tiny little bursts, and then primarily just be eating rice. And uh, luckily, I did have quite a bit of soy sauce, so I could at least add some flavor to it. And rice was just such a funny thing, because the tiniest amount, and I had bag after bag of this stuff, um, the tiniest little amount, and all of a sudden that jet boil is is almost half full of of rice and when you're that hungry just plain rice tastes fantastic it's full of flavor um i don't know it was it was it was amazing and then to add a little bit of soy sauce i mean i'm thinking wow this is great and you can eat a lot of it but it doesn't go anywhere and after 10 minutes even though you were and not even 10 minutes sometimes, I can remember finishing off a whole like bowl of rice and listening to my stomach just growl as as I was sort of swishing around a little bit of fresh water to clean the bowl and then also drink that. Because remember, nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing could go to waste at this point. And I don't know, it was... <laughs> It was a magnificent experience, uh, but it was also pretty scary. And 
And I would sit and I would just think about food all the time, all the time, just how much I had. And it wasn't until about, I don't know, maybe a week or so out from Cape Horn that I had done my maybe 20th inventory of all this food and trying to really be exact as possible. And I, I, I can remember there was one windfall day where I had gone through and pulled out the grab bag to see if I had stashed anything in there. And I was able to, I, I found like four or five MREs. Um, then there was actually a couple of like energy bars or something like that. And so all of a sudden there was like this boost, like this discovery. And I was elated. I mean, it, it added this huge amount of, of different flavors and, and things like that. And it was really a day of sort of celebration. Um, and that, that aided me uh, a little bit, but more, more than anything, it just was, it was super exciting. And, you know, the funny thing is on that note of discovery, this whole time of rationing and, and all that, there was uh, placed from my, my brother, Adam, in the lazarette, uh, just behind or underneath one of the propane tanks, a bag of beef jerky. Just one of those little quarter pound bags or something like that. And it sat in there that whole time. Uh, and I didn't discover it until I was tearing the boat apart after I had returned to land and was doing like the full full clean out and everything. And I came across this bag of, of beef jerky. So there was undiscovered uh, delicious treats all aboard while I was sort of going through this, this rationing experience. But... Uh, there was just a point where I knew after adding up the numbers, there was just, it was not going to be possible. And I started thinking, okay, well, if I'm going to have to stop somewhere and, or not really stop, that was, that was sort of the first thought was, am I going to be able to get food without having to stop? And that was sort of a key component because essentially the, there were like four or five guidelines to this voyage or goals, so to speak. Um, I didn't want to be sponsored. I didn't want to have to anchor, to tie off or uh, run aground, so to speak. I wanted to do it completely unassisted. Uh, and uh, let's see, oh, well, I guess that's a, that's the five. So those, those were sort of the guidelines, so to speak. And uh, I really desperately knew that if, if any of those were to be broken, uh, the one that I think I could live with the best would have been, uh, having to take assistance. Now, how to do that in my brain was a bit of a mystery, although I did have quite a few friends living on different islands in the Caribbean, and I figured it probably wouldn't be impossible to sort of set up a incognito sort of sail into a harbor and get a bunch of food brought out and then just sail on out. That way I didn't have to anchor or tie off or anything like that. So the, the whole stopping part would never become an actual issue. Uh, but I, I also knew that those were still more than an ocean away. I mean, we're talking just get to Cape Horn and then turn north and get all the way to the Caribbean. Really, actually, it's an ocean and a half. You know, we're talking six or 8,000 miles. And the timing wasn't going to work out. Um, and then, obviously, you have the entire coast of of uh, South America that, that has possible ports to pull into and, and all that sort of thing. So... There were a few options, and I, I can't remember where the idea of the Falkland Islands or the Malvinas sort of came into came into play, but essentially uh, we started to investigate. And I, I remember touching base with my father about it, and he he got sort of on the case. And as soon as he found out that that I could just get in there and they would bring a supply boat out and then just give me the food and I could just keep on going. Then all of a sudden it was, it was time for an exercise in, uh, <laughs> uh, I, 
almost lunacy, really, when I look back on it, um, saying to someone in the condition that I was in, you know, sort of rattled from the Southern Ocean and then also hungry and and all of this uh, saying to that person, well, hey, put together a shopping list and we'll get you what you want. And I still... I, I still think one of the biggest mistakes that I probably ever made uh, on this trip was was not having somebody check over that list and sort of take a look and, and say, okay, uh, you know you have 35, uh, <laughs> 35 logs of cookies, but you only have, uh, you know, one pound of ham or something like that, you know, uh, and how come you're not taking on any fresh water or how come you're not taking on any diesel? Well, the answers to those were that I felt like I felt like I wanted to if I was going to sort of cave on this idea of pulling in and having to get assistance, I wanted it to be as minimal of assistance as possible. And I know that kind of does sound pretty stupid because if you're already going to take on some food, why not take on some water? Why not take on some uh, some fuel? But at that point, I had water, and I was able to sustain myself for many months already. And I figured, you know what? I think as part of the adventure story goes, I think it'll be kind of a better thing, although risky for sure. And again, I'm not really thinking uh, with a full brain at this point. But I'm thinking to myself, well, no, I, I don't need it. Then I, I'm not going to get it. And I need food because I'm going to run out very shortly. And so I need that. And I don't need fuel because I still had fuel. The engine hadn't even been running forever. And I just wanted the absolute necessities. Now, you could include... Uh, the couple of bottles of alcohol that came on board is a need uh, because I had run out of those already. Uh, I hadn't had any of those in months. <laughs> so I quantify that as a food item because I was eating it um, and not as water because it was only dehydrating me, if anything. So that's my take on that situation. But <clears throat> uh, that was sort of my thinking was, okay, well, if this is going to work. I'm going to be able to go in there. I'm not going to have to tie off. I'm not going to have to anchor. I can just float there, sails down, take the food on, and then sail right out, say thank you, and uh, be on my way, and then crush the last couple of oceans and, and get home and, and make it all work. And now, suddenly, I'm sitting there with a notepad uh, just a few days away from Cape Horn, and I'm trying to scratch together this this shopping list of things and I know that it's expensive and I don't have a lot of money as far as uh you know how much I had in the bank and it was I don't know there were a lot of factors that were sort of floating around in my ocean addled brain and uh and I kept revising and redoing and it became a focal point essentially you know I was like sailing the boat but then diving back down and trying to figure out exactly what I want and then I would just think about having these these items and these delicious treats I mean I had I had more cookies and M&Ms and things like that on that list I mean those were that was what my brain was just going straight to and and peanut butter and all this and and so I I finally had the the full the full thing and and you know I could have gone very easily, I could have just gone overboard and just honestly tried to restock the whole boat as best as possible. Um, but again, there was this strange part of me sort of coing, coexisting with the idea of not bringing on water, not fuel and all that. It's just this, this idea of like, well, I'm just going to get enough to get me through. I don't want to just completely blow it up and then have food to spare at the end of this voyage, I still need to make it this challenge. Like I, I, it was my mistake in the beginning, and I want to make sure that I pay for that mistake, if that makes any sense at all. And so that was the game plan, and it got submitted, and they were able to get pretty much most of it. I think I had to make a couple little uh, 
changes here and there, but in the end, the the game plan was set, and now it was just a a, a small task of <laughs> rounding Cape Horn, and then being able to navigate right up to the Falkland Islands into um, into Port Stanley, um, or at least the harbor, right the the entrance of the harbor there. And do it with a chart that had the Falkland Islands about the size of a quarter or so, uh, without really any any severe detail. Meanwhile, the whole, entire time you're doing this in the the furious 50s, uh, as far as the Southern Ocean goes, and just trying your best. And so we get in there, and we get to Cape Horn, and we round that. And I break out the food. And at this point, it was sort of the uh, the tipping point as far as stupid decisions that I was making on this voyage. And I can't stress enough, uh, but at the same time, I, I think it just had a lot to do with the fact that I wasn't thinking. I think the situation was is that I my brain was not working the way it should have been. Only somebody taken away from that situation looking at it as I am now can say, wow, that was a really risky move there, buddy. And what I'm talking about essentially is that I just started eating everything. Uh, I like doubled my rations. I didn't worry about it because I was like, well, I'm going to get food in the Falklands. I'm going to get food in the Falklands. It's only a week or two away. What do we got? And I just started devouring and eating, and I I did still try to have a little bit of uh, uh, a little bit of well, I tried to hold back essentially from from eating all the good stuff. So the last cans of fruit, or or you know the last of the MREs, I didn't want it to just be rice uh, that I was left with after day two because I could have easily eaten every last little thing in one day. I'm sure. Uh, but essentially get around, get around Cape Horn and I'm still trying to sort of ration out these little things. Again, no idea that I've lost nearly 45 pounds and I'm just, I, I just remember eating rice. Whenever I got hungry at that point, I just ate more rice. I ate more and more and more and more. And I must've gone through an entire bottle of soy sauce in that, in that time. But I, you know, it was hot to eat and it was very cold outside it was snowing it was below freezing and so it was really the the best because boy that rice just holds that heat something fierce and so it was like the perfect treat to have in those latitudes and i'm eating and i'm eating and i'm enjoying this and and it's making life very very much more pleasurable um no longer am i just sitting there dwelling on what i can't eat I'm actually just thinking, oh boy, I, I think I'll make some more rice. Uh, I got, I got enough. I think in the end, and I, I can't be a hundred percent accurate on this, but I think I probably had on a normal, on a normal daily diet without rationing, I maybe might have had four days of food left by the time I got to the Falklands, uh, ration that out to maybe a week. Um, so that's how, that's how risky it was what I was doing. Cause essentially I was heading into the Falklands just as a pretty nasty gale was heading into the Falklands from the West. And we sort of met literally hours, uh, hours apart. I mean, when I got in there, trying to beat into the wind to get up into this harbor to calmer weather to meet this boat. It was very difficult. It was done in like 30 to 40 knot winds and hailstorms and and just really typical Southern Ocean sort of conditions. And, and it was only going to get worse and worse and worse through the night. And so really did uh, quite frankly, luck out. And there were times days before in between Cape Horn and the Falklands where I was becalmed and I'm just sitting there like, ah, oh, I can't move and trying to get the engine to, to work. And I couldn't do that because the engine was too cold. And I remember breaking the, uh, the Raycor filter and, and all this sort of stuff, trying to get this engine going because I really wanted to have 
some emergency sort of system to be able to get me out of trouble because, again, I didn't have a detailed chart of the area. So there's all these things sort of going on. Um, and I think one of the, the, one of the reasons that sailors are able to sort of do some of these things is essentially only because you can't just stop. You can't press pause and you can't say, oh, well, okay, come get me. It just, that's not a possibility. You have to, you have to, you've put yourself into a situation where you have to get yourself out of it. And no matter what's going on, it's, you know, the, if you give up, well, then you just sink and that's it. But if you carry on, uh, you're going to have one heck of a story to tell afterwards. Uh, <laughs> that's the bright side uh, of thinking right there. But essentially, get in there. And I can still remember being along the coast through the night. And this was one of the longest stints of not being able to sleep because, one, I was trying to have any idea of if there were any dangers in front of me. Two, anytime you can see the lights of land, it's just I've never been able to sleep in those conditions uh, because if if the winds shift or something happens, then all of a sudden the boat starts sailing towards it if I'm down asleep. I mean, I've read too many stories about sailors doing that and then waking up as their boat pounds on the rocks or on a reef and and then it's game over. So so there I am and I'm I'm sailing luckily pretty much downwind more on a broad reach uh maybe ooh I'd have to look in the in the logbook but maybe 15 miles or less offshore from the Falklands so cuz I wanted to get into the lee so to speak and there was still a pretty monster swell coming up from the south which was uh, a little exciting but it seemed like every half hour another hail squall was coming through and it was pretty decreased on the size of the sails and it's nighttime and I'm eating rice and just cooking more and more of it, um, charging away. And I'm just squinting my eyes through through the far darkness there. And I'm just looking for this one lighthouse light and I'm looking for the blinking light. And I just about as the half light starts to come up, that's when I see it. And I know that's the lighthouse that marks the entrance to uh to this little harbor that I was going into outside of Port Stanley. And I'd been told by a few different sources about what I should be looking for and the the shape of the little islands that are around and what the harbor might look like and where it's going to be safe to sail and all that. And as as the the night turns into day and I start getting my bearings and you know obviously I can see land and everything and I can start to see these rocks and again it's just one of those situations where uh to to my brain at that point compiled with the sleep deprivation and sort of weathering the 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 really bad squally weather for the last like 36 hours on top of just the last few months of the Southern Ocean and the rationing and all this stuff going on. Your brain is is cooking up all these things. And it's a really interesting time. I mean, it. I can remember, I closing my eyes right now, I can picture it I, uh, fully, like not even a glitch at all. I can remember pulling in and and coming up and seeing these these rocks and not understanding because it didn't didn't look like I wasn't seeing what I was expecting to see from what I was told and thinking to myself holy cow in the wind angle essentially there's there's a few little rocky outcrop islands there's about three of them just off of this point where this lighthouse is and I'm looking at it and the swell is going and the winds aren't too, too bad at this point, but they're building. And if I go around these rocks for another mile or so, that's going to take a long time to then beat back directly into the wind to get into this harbor. But if I cut in between these rocks and there's a lot of space in between them, but I just don't know what the depth is. And I can remember just sitting there and I'm, I'm thanking the world around me that there's a swell because the swell at least can indicate a bit uh, of whether or not there's 
there's going to be some real shallow areas and I've got my binoculars and I'm like squinting and looking for any signs and I'm ready to just jibe out of there. And luckily the, the winds were, were in a decent direction where I could maneuver very quickly if I needed to. And I can remember coming up and I'm seeing these islands and, and I'm sort of glancing my head over one side back to the other and I'm looking at these islands sort of go by and I'm just hoping that this isn't going to be the tragic end of my voyage. And I get through and now I'm I'm seeing the whole harbor and it's just covered in these white caps. They're small waves, but they're just white caps because the wind is just howling down this little harbor and there's another little island and i'm seeing whale spouts and there's kelp beds so a lot of stuff to take on you know I, i've come from just essentially just ocean and just waves to now lots of other things lots of input and there's no boat uh, i'm just in this harbor and it's just me and i'm thinking holy cow and and there there's so much going on at that point that when the Garmin inReach went off and suddenly there's somebody trying to contact me, it was this like ping in my head of like, okay, okay, we got another one. Now we've got the outside people. So it's not just me anymore, which was sort of a shock at first. And then that led to, I'll never forget, that led to a funny, funny thought. It was like a pause from the whole situation. Just thinking to myself, I wonder how many people are actually like, kind of watching this, uh, so to speak, through, at that point, it would have been Facebook, I guess, little updates and things like that, I don't know, or or just people calling and talking to my father. Um, I don't know. Uh, it was just a funny thought of being like, I wonder if there's people actually, you know, sort of waiting by the phone, trying to see how this whole thing goes down. Because for me, Knowing what it was like uh, and being in it, it was it was rather exciting. Uh, whether or not anybody in the outside world would have thought that or known that is is anybody's guess. But in any way, it was it was kind of a funny break. And then finally, you know, the I got the text that said they've spotted you and they're on their way. Look for the red boat. And so now I'm like, wow. So I'm just sort of going back and forth on the same track, uh, not too far up because I don't know exactly what's going to happen here. And I wanted to just stay in relatively known water that I've at least gone back and forth in. And I'm doing it under storm sail and triple reef main. And I do have Luckily, I have like five or six pictures that this boat took of me in that, and it looks absolutely ridiculous. I mean, got you got Sparrow's big hull, bright and white with these sort of green stripes on it and stuff, and then, and then you've got these teeny little sails, but we're still like heeled way over. And the boat comes back and it points to the the little cove that we're going to go to, which so funny when I got finally a proper chart of the Falklands, uh, I. I see that the next cove up, upwind of the one that we went to, was called Sparrow's Cove. And how poetic and how crazy would that have been? What a coincidence to actually uh, get resupplied in Sparrow's Cove would have just been absolutely nuts. But in any event, I had no idea of any of this. And they direct me up there. It's directly upwind. And the winds are now really pushing into that 35 plus not range so pretty much getting into like the gale force but again we're in a protected harbor so the waves aren't very big but i'm not making any headway at all and end up finally just throwing the staysail up and that after another like 45 minutes or so gets me upwind and drop sail and they just pull right up alongside they luckily had a big old rub rail they bump into the boat and then just boom it's instant just throwing throwing boxes right onto me and uh very fortunate that they said hey listen you know you can just drift you're gonna drift right out of here we'll keep an eye on the boat and uh you just you just stow everything you need to stow and before i stowed even one iota one cracker anything everything just got thrown right down below First thing I did was grab a bottle of scotch and take a big swig off of that in sort of celebration. It was pretty amazing. And I did it right in front of them and everything. And they, they're, you know, 50 feet away from the boat at this point. And, and Sparrow's just sort of drifting. But as we're drifting, 
you know, the waves, as we get further and further away from land, uh, the waves get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I tried, everything just was happening so fast. It was really, it was so overwhelming and I just couldn't do everything at that same time. And I was like, okay, well, let me get stuff stowed to a point where it's not going to break. Uh, let me get the things in the fridge that need to be in the fridge. Everything else, ugh, except for that log of cookies, that bag of M&Ms, that bottle of scotch. And, uh, and let's just really quickly make a tiny ham sandwich because that would be the greatest thing in the world. And, and, and let's try and sail as well. And there was another, you know, essentially I got the, I ended up getting the sails at once, once everything was sort of stoned, I, I was sort of devouring food as well. And, and all this stuff, uh, it essentially goes and I get the mainsail up and I start just heading downwind and I'm heading away from the island away from the shore there's ships around so at this point and I'm I'm sort of having to avoid them a little bit so I'm dashing from down below stowing to up top and taking a look to make sure I'm not going to hit anything and I've just got to get past one more point of land and then I'm I'm free but it's all downwind sailing to it so the sailing part is pretty easy and I'm back to stowing and devouring stowing and devouring and the waves are getting bigger and bigger, so now I'm getting sort of tossed around in the boat, and it's it's a little bit wild. And I remember having to get all of the um, all of the cardboard off of this boat because cardboard has a nasty little habit of keeping cockroach eggs in it, and and just having cockroaches as well. And I don't know what their situation is on those islands. And I had had one cockroach earlier on in the voyage. And so it was something that was definitely on my mind and thinking to myself, all right, well, I got to get rid of this. All this cardboard's got to go, but you can't just throw cardboard boxes in the ocean because they have tape and labels and all this sort of stuff. So all that has to come off first. So I'm down and you got to picture me. I'm, <laughs> I'm devouring and I'm stowing and I'm ripping apart cardboard and ripping labels off of it. And then folding the cardboard and throwing it in the cockpit and throwing it in the cockpit. And this is sort of going on and on and we're getting rolled more and more. The wind and the waves are building up and hail squalls coming in and I'm still trying to eat stuff and, and all this is going on. And then at some point, the, the weight of Sparrow, the motion of Sparrow changed. And essentially I'm, I'm kind of like, it just doesn't feel right. And I think we took one pretty decent little breaker over over the stern, sort of got pooped, as they say. And and uh, I, I poke my head up. And as soon as I get up there, on uh, just out of the, the companionway hatch, I see how much water is all over Spiro. Not just in the cockpit footwell, which holds about a half a ton of water. But as I look forward, it's all over the deck. Like we're bowed down a little bit. I'm thinking to myself, what in the heck is going on? And then boom, I see it. All this cardboard had already turned to mush. Salt water just eats this stuff alive. And it had already sort of turned to mush and plugged up all the scuppers all over the boat. And so all the water that was coming on was staying on. And, you know, Sparrow's got pretty big bulwarks, the little walls on the outer edge of the sailboat. So it was holding quite a bit, probably a couple tons of water. And it was essentially pushing us down, sinking us, if you will. And so I'm scrambling up there and trying to push all this stuff out and get it through the, out of the scuppers. And we just start offloading water. I mean, it's pouring. I've never seen it like that before. And, uh, and then we sort of get back into a better rhythm and I'm a little more cautious about what I'm doing here. And lo and behold, as, as the day sort of turns into night, I've got pretty much everything stowed. It's off the cabin floor and I'm pretty happy because I actually get to have a wonderful, delicious dinner of one can of ravioli, which was amazing because it was hot and I hadn't had some in so long. And also be able to sort of finish things off with a nice cocktail, a little sundowner, and some cookies. I mean, the cookies, oh, you just can't say enough about them. Chocolate chip, delicious, dry. Uh, I can't remember the, the name of them. They've always got different names in different countries. But essentially, you know, Chips Ahoy cookies, but 
from the Falkland Islands. And it was absolutely amazing. And I hadn't slept now at this point, I don't know, close to 40 hours, um, which is an insane amount of time for, for what, what I'd been through during that time. And, uh, as the night comes on, the gale really starts to kick up. The waves get pretty big and it, it turns out, uh, that we're still in some sort of shipping lane or something like that, because not long after dark, the AIS starts blowing up and I see that there's a ship directly behind us and it's pretty much going the same direction. It's moving a lot faster than I am. And this is a situation where I was sort of getting a little panicky, I think because of the lack of sleep. Um, probably my brain wasn't working very well from all the sugar that I had eaten that day as well. I'm sure my body was thinking, holy cow, but what is all this? And I'm trying to get them on the VHF and I'm getting nothing there. And so I pull out the handheld VHF because by this point, they're pretty close. I can see their lights uh, in between the waves and everything. And and my my heading is changing quite a bit because I'm slewing around in, in these waves. And it's just sort of a nightmare situation. He's getting closer and closer. You get within about a half a mile directly behind me and it was going to be a close pass. I couldn't get any, any, uh, communications going with them at all. And just was stressful. It was a time where I wanted nothing more than to just be able to go to sleep. And again, I'm just stuck awake middle of the night. And I remember finally, once it passed, I was able to get a good couple of hours of sleep, but before sunrise around the three or four in the morning, range suddenly the winds as they do after these systems go through start to die off and the main starts to slat and i have to put up more sail and so i'm up and i'm doing all this stuff but at this point it really didn't matter too much because it meant i could also have another snack and um that was one of the times where i i i just i don't know i felt more alive i think than uh almost any time in my life and Definitely felt pretty pretty accomplished at that point, just from not not from the entire voyage in its in its uh, scale, but just in the the last two days of trying to approach this island, uh, make up for all the mistakes I made, and get the food and and get back into a zone where where I can continue and finish off the voyage. And shortly thereafter, the next day was was the day where I essentially was becalmed and found found out just how how uh, close I was to to really being in in serious trouble as far as my weight. Uh, I did a bunch of work on replacing the VHF aerial up on the spreader, which meant sent me up and down the mast I don't know six or seven times. And after all that was fixed and all that was done. Or at least I assumed it was fixed because uh, there were no ships around to be able to try and communicate with. But in any event, uh, I essentially was able to peel off all the layers and take about a quarter gallon uh, hot bath, you know, pouring a little bit of fresh water over me. But I'll never forget being down below and peeling all those thermals off. I was wearing probably three or four layers and seeing the veins sort of draping from my shoulders down and then across my belly and on my legs and thinking to myself, holy cow, I've never seen that before. And sort of feeling my stomach and and really visibly seeing this eight-pack abs that I've never had in my life and uh, and just realizing, holy cow. And I remember after that bath, I put some deodorant on. And I couldn't fit, the deodorant bar wouldn't fit all the way up into my armpit. It had sunk in so far. And I did a little photo op, and I'm glad I have those photos uh, of just me and a pair of boxers um, sort of just flexing and all that sort of stuff. Very reminiscent of like a Bruce Lee or something like that. Teeny little muscles, but very defined. And uh, I was so ghostly pale. When I look at videos and pictures of of myself in that whole Cape Horn era, um, pre, pre that shower, I looked sort of weathered and tan and wrinkly and all this sort of stuff. And 
that was all just dead skin and dirt and sunscreen and all this gross stuff that I'd never really washed off of my body for months. And when I finally did, I was as pasty as a ghost. And uh, it was it was definitely pretty pretty shocking to see what uh, what two and a half months of rationing had done to my body. But I had the cookies, I had the food, and uh, I made up for it in short order after that. It's uh, The rest of the story is, I don't know, just goes on and on. But in any event, uh, I don't know, I just figured I would uh, talk about this one today uh, on a little solo solo podcast this Sunday morning. I hope you enjoyed that story. It's uh, it's one of my favorites to tell, especially in person, because I get pretty animated when uh, I talk about eating and stowing and drinking and eating and stowing and sailing and sinking and all that sort of stuff. It's it's definitely a lot of fun. But other than that, I hope you guys enjoy the show. More to come. And uh, thanks for listening. <laughs>